This is episode 25. We're talking Red October and not the movie, not Sean Connery. We're talking about the Bolshevik Revolution. We're talking about communism and America and why it is a huge problem. We have a special guest joining us today. Mr. John is all we're going to call him. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope you get uh, your textbooks ready because we're going to school. Welcome to the new normal, where we're talking current events, finances, philosophy, preparedness, and more. My name is Sal, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Quentin. Each week, we dive into those various topics and bring you an inspiring person or message to navigate the world with a positive mindset in this new normal. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Now, here we go. Everybody, welcome back to the new normal. My name is Sal. With me, as always, is my good friend Quentin. Say hi to everybody, Quentin. What's up, guys? It's been a hot minute once again. Life, man. Let's talk about life for about two minutes. We've been busy with uh, our lives and our jobs and family. Quentin, you just bought new property here in uh, Southeast Texas, so we're excited to have you a little bit closer to the to the home base of the new normal. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been a month since our last episode. Great episode with Jen Horling, her book, Finding His Voice. That was a really impactful interview. If you guys hadn't checked that one out, we encourage you to go check episode 24 with Jen Horling. But today we have an amazing expert joining the panel today. We're going to introduce him as John. Thank you so much for joining us, John. We're going to be talking about Red October and America's communism problem. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you very much, Sal. So talk to me a little bit about your background. What is it that you are bringing to the new normal? What is it that you're bringing to the table today to discuss on Red October and America's communist problem? So I bring a variety of um, personal experiences, familiar experiences, as well as academic uh, knowledge to this particular uh, issue. Academically, uh, I'm an international politics and diplomacy major um, focused on Eastern Europe and Russia, which is where we saw the manifestation of communism and uh, applicable Marxism actually take root and create what has arguably been one of the biggest conflicts in human history. Um, Outside of that, uh, I personally uh, am a a researcher in things that uh, involve uh, communism, involve Bolshevism, Menshevism, all the other subsets of Marxist thought theory. Um, And then familially, I come from a Russian immigrant family that was first wave emigre, also known as the white emigre. Uh, We were Russian imperialists. Uh, My great grandfather fought in the Tsar's army uh, for a number of years uh, in World War I, was severely wounded was exfiltrated to a rear evacuation point, managed to convalesce and recover, and then after the collapse of the empire, continued fighting in the white army in the north until he was wounded again and evacuated from Mark Anglis to Finland and then from Finland to England. Um, I have a 
large amount of high profile uh, white movement uh, individuals in my family, including Dr. Eugene Wotkin, who was executed uh, with the Romanovs in Impiatov House in Yekaterinburg, um, as well as my great grand uncle, who was uh, Vasily uh, Gorgiev uh, Boldarev, who at one point in time was commander of all Russian uh, forces in the White Army before he surrendered that duty over to Admiral Kolchak. That's a very extensive background. We appreciate that uh, recap. What is it that really boils your blood that you really want to get this information out there and, and what you're seeing in America happening right now with it being October 2020? We're very close to an election. We're seeing a lot of civil unrest. We're seeing a lot of just chaos and Every day, it seems either the Congress, the Senate, or specifically today, Nancy Pelosi is looking for another way to get rid of President Trump. Are you seeing some similarities in, in the ousting of the czars in what's happening here in a Red October, October surprise situation? So I wouldn't draw a, a parallel between the overthrow of a monarchy by a populist front as opposed to a non-peaceful transfer of power between democratically elected uh, parties and individuals. Um, but I definitely see on the side of the left parallels that can be drawn um, to Bolshevism and Menshevism, which were the two Marxist ideologies that then took root in the Russian Empire and transitioned into a communist totalitarian regime, uh, first under Lenin and then under Stalin, and et cetera, et cetera. We all know the history on that. But um, the parallels that I would like to draw is in our political organs and political mechanisms of this country, we see a, a hard move to the left. Um, amongst Democrat uh, party elected officials. They have started embracing these concepts of socialism and some have embraced outright communism. Um, individuals like Andrea Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, et cetera. Um, they don't have a qualm with saying that we are quote unquote Democrat socialists, which is very much the narrative that the Mensheviks used. They're, they're, argument was we're not violent radicals we're not wanting to do anything other than give people the fair shake that they have appointed us as their representatives to give them through law and through governance by the same token we have these anarcho-communists who very much mimic the ideology of the bolsheviks the bolsheviks were of the same ideological uh, deviation as the Mensheviks, but their view was you had to have violent revolution to enact extreme and radical change. And we see that in our current political systems through these organizations like BLM, which, which presents itself as a racial equality movement, racial equality organization. But at the same time, when you look at any of the demands that they make, their demands are for radical socialist change. And then you also have this organization called Antifa. I will tell you that in Russia, the 
Second World War is known as the Great Patriotic War, and that was billed by the communists as a war against fascism, which it was for all intents and purposes. But what the Soviet Union was able to do with the people of Russia was create an image of the enemy as being an ultra-fascist movement, which is opposed to the free life and dem democratic you know, existence of the people of Russia. And then by that same token, they're able to stoke the nationalist ideologies and convictions of the Russian people in that war. And that's very much what Antifa is doing. They're billing themselves as anti-fascist. Their target, though, in this sense, isn't any sort of fascism. It's, a, it's a, a rejection of people's abilities to live within their own spheres of influence to their own standards. And for communist and Marxist ideologies, that is untenable. And the reason why is because you have to have consolidation of power at the state, and then all of your liberties come and are bestowed upon you from that state socialist organ. And so any deviation from that is an affront to their actual political motives. And by labeling the opposition as fascists, it is able to, Antifa, is able to present itself as some sort of quote-unquote champion of the people and as a result are given leeways in mass violent revolution as we've seen throughout this entire country. And politicians are afraid to condemn it. Uh, general populations are able to champion them as anti-fascist which they build themselves as and somehow defend the violence and destruction that they reap for purely political purposes. Two questions for you on that front. When, when we look at Antifa and when we, we look at what happened months ago now, I can't believe it, it just, it's a fleeting thought at this point, but the Chaz, we had the, the um, Capitol Hill autonomous zone and Antifa was at the, at the forefront of this. How did we get from there to presidential candidates not denouncing that violent overthrow of, of essentially a six square block, 12 square blocks. That's question number one. How did we get from that to, to a presidential candidate who's not denouncing that? But then at the same time, how do they call themselves Antifa, anti-fascists, when they are using these totalitarian tactics, not letting the press in violent you know, shootings and rapings and, and intimidation, getting these businesses to essentially pay a tax, if you will, for them to have protection. I mean, this is mafia when it comes to how, how they were running the Chaz. How did we get from there to now a, a presidential candidate who refuses to denounce that violence? And, and you, you brought up fear. And, and I'm curious as to, I guess maybe this is the third question, why are they afraid to denounce it? If, if you don't mind, could I, could I answer that and let, let John add to it? Because he's going to have a lot more to add to it. Yeah. Go, go, go right ahead, so, Clinton. So we got to the point where political uh, candidates can't denounce this because they have so shifted the Overton window left. And we are, we're playing uh, reactionary politics with leftists and having to argue within their own dialectic. And it's very problematic. They are actually anti-fascist. 
See, what people don't realize is when the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks and these radical communists, whether they were the Leninists or Trotskyites, occurred, the reaction socially to this anarcho-communistic or really this degenerate ideology was actually fascism. Like that was actually a reaction to a lot of that. Um, so they are truly not fascist because at the core of their ideology, they are extremely socially degenerate. And the, the core of fascism actually is around a kind of a moralistic collective, and there is some socialism to it, but there's also a lot of, if you look at Mussolini, there's a difference between Mussolini's fascism, Hitler's, and Franco's. There's different forms of government within all of those fascisms, but there is a social conservatism that is just totally in, uh, absent in uh, a type of Bolshevism. So if you look at what happened in during the Great Leap Forward, there was extreme degeneracy promoted in Russia, just like there is now today um, with this particular movement. It is to basically destroy and remove the standing cultural ideology and to replace it like year zero. Um, and you hear them many times talk about how they're going to, you know, when they take over, they're going to gulag your kids and they're going to gulag you and reeducate you and all of this stuff. That sounds very extreme, but to them, and according to their ideology, it is actually necessary because how would you take billionaires and millionaires, divorce them from their wealth and completely make them homeless and without a culture? You would literally have to generationally brainwash them and totally separate them from their ideology and their wealth. Otherwise, those people could rise up again and take power really easily. So there's that aspect to it um, where, you know, they've shifted the Overton window. We can't even call them what they are. We're always like, well, they're Nazis, they're brown shirts. Now, the, I'm not defending Nazis or brown shirts, okay? And I'm not like advocating for fascism, but those guys literally happened to kick these guys' asses. Like that's, that's literally what occurred. There used to be like running gun battles on the streets of Germany. So, um, so can, can I jump in on this? Yeah, um, sure. So um, I think one of the, one of the problems that, that we, we come up against is not understanding um, fully or too emotionally involving ourselves in, in understanding the differences between political thought and where that crossroads uh, intersects with just human nature. Now, sure. In the the greater outlook of the difference between communism and fascism, socialism, democracy, monarchism, theism, all we find is the the same human characteristic of a desire for some sort of control of the chaotic creature that is a, a society. Right, and so we find different approaches to to control what it is that humans as a collective are capable of, which is great destruction, great chaos, um, without some sort of direction. I I take your point about the idea of communism being a a lack of what we consider in at least Western. Um, theory as uh, you know morality and and a base culture of of a civilized society. I don't, you um, know, I'd like to correct myself on that because I I don't I don't mean that as longstanding capitalism. You obviously or communism. You obviously see when you know Stalinism and post-Stalinist Soviet policies happen. 
it was an extremely natalistic conservative society. You know, despite what Americans think, the Soviet Union was very socially conservative, it was very economically foreign to us, but there was a lot of social conservatism. And that that probably just comes with authoritarianism and trying to maintain control. But as a strategy to disrupt and to, from the bottom up, change society, it, it does promote moral... I don't know if well, I would so, necessarily go as far to say degeneracy, but abnormal so the, or deviant morals in the classical the, sense. The, con- the convictions that are then seized upon, right? So we have to understand that power is derivative of the base, right? So a, a government, no matter what its form, inherits all of its authority, which is centered on the legitimate use of violence against its own people from the very people that 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 forces is then legitimately granted by and um you know if we look at at gellner's analysis we we find that these habitus that then develop into the nation state has to have some sort of a transitional period to go from one form of government to another and I think that in the differences between fascism and democracies and everything that we had just mentioned previously, um, it's indicative of the society and culture in order to find what is the best angle to get the support of the populace. Now, when you see communist revolution and you saw the rise of communism throughout the, the 20th century, um, you find a very interesting pattern. What you found in that pattern were very previously agrarian, non-industrialized societies with very low education. And so in pitching your bid, basically, to those types of population, what spoke well to those populations was you have been under the thumb of your oppressors for so long and now it is time for you to do whatever it is that you want to do to make yourself happy and we are here to support that by the same token if we look at the rise of fascism as you mentioned the franco regime the the uh, nazi third reich regime the italian mussolini regime you have historically long-standing cultures and societies of a population that had economic and political mobility. And so when you try to sell your message of centralizing power to those people, you have to do what the fascists have always done. It is the revertation back to what was it that made us so exceptional? Why have we the German people or why have we the Italian people or why have we the Spanish people been so successful and we revert back to our traditional standards of our culture and our society. So I don't think that there is an actual ideological conviction from the top down saying fascists are going to be traditionalist, very, you know, moralistically driven, or that communists are going to be, you know, laissez-faire, you know, go out and do as thou will. I don't think from the top down there is an actual conviction from no. the leadership that that is true. Politics is always it's, downstream of culture. Exactly. And this, yeah. and this is going to the other question that, that Sal was asking is why are we seeing this rise in 
violent polarization within our political system. And that's because the United States as a society and as a culture actually had fairly limited political mobility up until fairly recently. Yeah. And we are a young nation, but it wasn't until the second half of our nation's existence that we had full political mobility. And when you give full political mobility to a class who did not have it beforehand, whether it's non-landowners, non-taxpayers, uh, African-Americans, or women, you're, you're giving a class that beforehand did not have political nobility new access to political uh, authority. Yeah, people and don't when you, realize that. And when, when you do that, when you do that, then it stands to reason that you will have a growth of the lefter-leaning political ideologies that then pander to that. That, hey, you were oppressed, you were held under, you were not allowed your rights by this establishment. And that's where you get leftist deviation in politics. It's not that Nancy Pelosi believes any of this stuff. It's not that you know, Chuck Schumer believes any of this stuff. It's not that Bernie Sanders or Andrea, well, Andrea Ocasio-Cortez is young and inexperienced enough to where she might actually believe it. But those, those older political elites don't actually believe the stuff that they espouse. It's all utilization to then maintain political power. No matter what system of government you have, you will always have a political elite. The only difference is in a democratized system, you have a political elite that must maintain power by populism. Yeah. And people don't realize that until the late 19th century, men did not have universal suffrage. suffrage. And we did not have full universal suffrage in this country until 1965. Absolutely. Before the late 19th Absolutely. century, less than 6% of the American population could vote. And I mean, that's pretty significant. Yep. People, people always talk about how this is the land of liberty and all that. And it is. You had individual, individual liberties and you had a Bill of Rights that came about after the Constitution. And you did have rights and you could defend yourself under those rights. But you didn't necessarily have a voice. Uh, and, and that was just that was right. just the way it was for a very long time. And it was kind of seen as a as a control measure and to prevent a French revolution in this country in the future to limit the the voice to the basically the highest echelons of society and the educated and the people who had the most skin in the game. Would either of you right. consider that the flashpoint that got us to where we are now was the George Floyd incident? Had there not been a perceived murder of George Floyd, would we be having this violent revolution, quote unquote, that, that we're seeing happening in, in these leftist leaning Absolutely. states? Yeah, we would have had it anyway. They would have found another incident. Right. And, and I'm, I'm going to agree with Quentin on this. I think that we, we like to point to, uh, you know, flashpoints, as you phrased it, um, and say, oh, this is the reason why this happened right and and from a like too close modern standpoint when you're when you're actually in the historical point it's hard to actually separate and look look from a distance and and analyze what really happened we would have had 
the political violence regardless. We had the political violence since the day that Donald J. Trump was elected. I mean, that, that's, that's been an ongoing thing. The to only clarify, difference is... Yeah, to clarify the question then, w- would it be fair to say that that was utilized, that that was used as a means to propagate this definitely. narrative? There's, there's absolutely. always a, a, absolutely a and entirely. Movement. Right. So you got you got to understand, like when when was when was BLM born as not the organization that we know it as today? Because it is an organization. It's an organization that is bankrolled, funded, and then bankrolls and funds other organizations. It is it is an established organization, and it is a fully politicized entity. But if you look back when the, the words Black Lives Matter um, are first put forward in the national narrative was with the killing of Trayvon Martin. Yep. And a lot of people Trayvon think Martin it was, was Eric Brown by, or Trayvon. Trayvon Martin was killed by a Hispanic male that had no affiliation with government, had no affiliation. As a matter of fact, law enforcement on the voice recordings tells him to stop what he's doing, quit following this kid, we'll handle it. But that served as the catalyst that led to what is now this giant political movement of defund law enforcement, of redistribute wealth to the the, uh, disenfranchised communities. And these are the narratives that they use, but that's not their objective. If that were their objective, they would not be burning down black neighborhoods. They would not be calling out and assaulting black political commentators like Candace Owen for being a race traitor because she has different ideology. No, the reality for these sort of movements, political movements, is to utilize people's emotions, hyperbolically expand on on situations that then allows them to use emotion to drive a greater following from some sort of perceived victim class. And that's the exact same way that the Bolsheviks led their revolution. And we have a, a two-minute two recap for those who are not familiar. Define the Bolshevik revolution and, and how that came to be. Give me the elevator pitch on that. Oh. Not, not literally elevator pitch, but I don't even know if you're talking to me, me or Quentin. I was about to yeah. say, so, all right. So what, if, if I had, if I had to give it like the layman's understanding of what the Bolshevik revolution, because there were numerous revolutions that led up to the actual final revolution, the 19, right. uh, the 20th century uh, revolution, not the 1905 revolution, but what wound up overthrowing the czar and the czar's government is a, a populist uprising that was propagated by economic distress, societal non-mobility, and an aggressive industrialization of a previously agrarian nation. So the long and the short was, is a political class of individuals, of intellectuals, was able to go about and spread to the masses that were undereducated or unfamiliar with the way that government worked, spread to the masses this concept of victimization. You have been under the thumb of the bourgeoisie 
for your entire lives. It is time for you to seize your rightful power. And your power is your control of your own labor authority. God, none and of that, that sounds familiar. To an industrial, a newly industrial. I, I would like really. to say this. Um, none of that sounds familiar in what's happening yeah, no. around us right now. The, uh, so what I said earlier, it wasn't, it wasn't somehow to defend, you know, ultra right wing or fascist or Nazis or anything like that. The Nazis scare all of us, right? They killed a lot of people. But what you're dealing with is the biggest killer. Communism and Bolshevism, I, I, would, I would be willing to bet because a lot of we, we don't, we're not even familiar with Lenin's body count because of what he did. What started the, the Great Leap Forward was massive famines and starvations of, of tens of millions of people. And a lot of that wasn't even very well documented. But all of communism, probably, if I had to guess, the, the rough estimate is something like 200 million. That's what we know about. Okay. But the, the actual body count of communism across the world is probably close to half a billion people. It's extremely high. As far as political killers, there is no rival on the planet. And to start calling these people things that they actually aren't and not call them what they are, which is an actually a much scarier thing, is really problematic. And we're not able to label our enemy. How are we ever going to actually you know, argue with them or to call them out or hold them accountable in any way? Well, so that was that that goes back to the the in my opinion catastrophic uh presidential debate that we just had. Um yeah. <laughs> but uh that that goes back to that goes back to the statement that Joe Biden said whenever he was asked about condemning Antifa and he said Antifa's just an idea, man. So yes. Yeah. Democracy is an idea. America is an idea. Everything is an idea, Joe. But exactly right. when it is put into application, it is no longer just an idea. It is a movement. What is exactly the, right? What is the attraction to communism? What what is it that gets people riled up? And, and I and I have a understanding of the lower class, the the impoverished, the people who's been under the thumb that they get this zeal for being able to overthrow their oppressors. Is that the attraction? Is there something else? Yeah, it's, it's, it's false equality. See, it's I, everything John said, this pro so, food. And well, I, I, I disagree that, that that's actually what the, the draw towards uh, communism is because for the lower classes, that is, that is the argument that is utilized. But right. we have to understand that, that communism isn't started at the base. It's not, it's not as they bill it, a, a ground up, the proletariat rising against the controlling mechanisms. It's that, that middle class intelligentsia, as we used to you know, define them back then, but our, exactly our right. academic class, it's our academic class who knows that by disrupting the system, they can do one of two things. One, they can seize political power. And two, they can make themselves relevant. I would argue that your biggest purporters of communism aren't people that have ever suffered a day in their life. It's people that have stagnated because they are intellectually stunted. They are unable to move to any other 
their greater position. And then by promoting revolution, they make a name for themselves when they otherwise would have never been able to achieve that. You look at your Andrea Ocasio-Cortez's. The only thing that she has is the fact that she is a uninspired minor cog political pawn, but it gets her national notoriety. And she wasn't going to go anywhere in the private sector in her achievement of getting that self-gratification was to latch on to this idea of communism. A lot of really in the United States, the progenitor of this ideology is Frankfurt School. And people need to familiarize themselves with Frankfurt School, what they intended to do, the march to the institutions, Adorno, Marcuse, Ignatiev. These guys, these intellectual elite in the New York area, they were in NYU, Columbia, universities like that, set about a plan to basically march their ideology throughout academia. And, and uh, Marcuse, um, or, uh, yeah, Marcuse basically was in, um, you know, advertising, propaganda, that sort of thing. And established basically a campaign to, I don't know if I want to call it Freudianized, I think, but he was Freud's nephew. But it was, a, it was a specific type of propagandistic psychology that he used in media to start to try to manipulate the masses through mass media. But that was, you know, Frankfurt School came about in the, the 30s and it ended up here in the 30s, right? But the, the, I cannot remember what the progenitors, the actual Frankfurt, ide, Frankfurt School ideology were, but they do come out of they come out of Germany and out of Moscow, if I believe. I don't know if John knows who they were or not. I, can't, I cannot remember who these guys were. The original thought leaders. It wasn't just Lenin, but it was these academics that surrounded themselves or surrounded him. So, again, it, this, is, this is a very difficult thing to understand the, the, the point of origin of what was able to take root in Russia, right? We have to understand that, that none of this, this Marxist communist theory was organic to Russia. It was all no. imported. It was all imported yeah. by the academic class, right? And um, to understand how it found root in Russia, which I, I feel like I'm going off topic because I this is more of a history lesson than it is a political science lesson, and I don't know if I should delve down that rabbit hole We're to here answer for your question. Well, so in short, what what you had was you had the the entire emancipation of the serfdom of Russia happened uh, by Tsar Alexander the Third, which is why he's known as Alexander the Emancipator. Um, and that that occurred um, actually about the same time that the emancipation of slaves occurred in the United States happened the mid nineteenth century and what what we got from that was we had a a rural population of uneducated laborers that were then given to some varying degree their own individual control over their lives, over moving, over what they want to do for a living. Um, and then the Russian Empire 
tried to address the secondary issues of emancipating a population. They founded the Peasants Land Bank, um, which was to give capital to the newly emancipated peasant class in order for them to start their own farms, their own small businesses, et cetera. Um, and then the second thing they did was they started an expansive system of education networks in uh, state-run public schools that allowed enrollment for, for the, the lower class peasantry, right? You know, the myth is that it was the Soviet Union that founded the education system of Russia, which has made Russia one of the most literate nations in the face of the planet. They advanced it. However, they did not found it. It was founded well before the Soviet Union was even close to being a reality. So we have that as the critical point of having a, a base population that did not have access to the means of gaining economic and political uh, mobility. And that was a shortfall. And then when you had the industrialization of Russia, that created an even bigger problem because as you've seen in the United States, when industry booms and you get urbanization and all of the surrounding areas try to go into the cities to find these new lines of work, which are more consistent and you're no longer having to survive on your own subsistence farming and selling what you have secondary to you know, scratch a meager living you get urbanization. And when you have urbanization, that creates a, a popul population density where things like Marxist ideology spread far more aggressively. Because we have to understand, you know, Marx and Engels' entire focus of the proletariat couldn't have cared less about the rural farmer. It was all about the industrial worker. And so as that started trickling into Russia, during Russia's late stage um, industrialization, it found root because they were going through the early growing pains of an emerging industrial empire that Marx and Engels had wrote, written about from a developed industrial standpoint in their analysis of the British industrialization. And so this creates the the bubbling under surface of what would then be utilized by the academic elites to drive the people of the urban areas into revolution against a monarchy another factor that helped fracture the monarchy was actually the fact that it was partially the noble class on one side that felt they did not have enough political authority, political power. And this is a historical problem of Russia going all the way back to the Boyers before the time of Troubles and Ivan III. Um, the, there was a certain subset of the noble class that felt two things. One, they didn't have enough representation in court. Two, there were too many people being given access to the noble classes that were not of long-standing noble familial names. So you had a fracturing within where a monarchy derives its power. Monarchies derive their power from the noble class, who then derive their power from the actual base. And when that happened, and you had the forced ab abdication of Tsar Nicholas II, 
it wasn't the communists that forced Tsar Nicholas's abdication. It was the Duma. And the Duma, which is considered basically their lower house of their modern bicameral government. Uh, at that time, it was a unicameral government. But the Duma forced his resignation not because they wanted to end the monarchy. It was because they wanted to put his younger brother on the throne as czar because he would have been more manageable. When that did not work out is when you had the Bolshevik ascension to the Duma and start rising in their popularity. And then you had the populist overthrow of the mechanisms of government, the military, the law enforcement. And that is what, what culminated into the Bolshevik revolution. So again, I know that you asked about like the, the single point. There isn't one. It's human nature. It's a culmination of events that have gotten us exactly. to where we are. And, and it's, it's different classes contributing mm-hmm. their own effort to it. A lot of and what you described, I, I was just going to say, a lot of what you described really, I mean, it, to put it in a relevant context, a lot of what you just described sounds like what we saw in Portland. We had this upper middle class, maybe even higher middle class white individuals who took up this cause and not a single black person that I could see. Maybe there were a few. I'm not going to be hyperbole, use hyperbole on that, but it, it was mainly white people in Portland rising up in this chaz, in this ch- uh, autonomous zone that were u- using the BLM movement to then continue to further propagate this, this communist manifesto, this communist agenda. So a lot of what you're seeing is history repeating itself. And what is it that we can do? What is it that, what is a call to action for patriots, if you will, that are looking to truly, I don't, I don't know how to phrase this. Do we stop this? Is there means to stop this that we can actually do it where we don't have a violent revolution or are we headed in that direction? So I would add what you were saying that these, these kids were actually like rich, like these, these weren't just middle-class kids. Some of the foot soldiers were, but the leaders of this are like actual politicians, kids, you know, uh, right. Titans of industry, children, media moguls, stuff like that. These are, these are actually rich kids. That's, that's something that's kind of odd with what actually happened on the West coast and in New York. Um, but to, to add to what John was saying also, like the, the, what we're seeing here is a breakdown in authority in a political power vacuum that is allowing for a similar circumstance. So I, I like the point that you, you made about uh, the children of Titans of industry, because if anybody knows anything about, uh, you know, communist Marxist theory and history, uh, Engels was the son of an extremely, extremely wealthy industrialist. Um, yeah. Engels came from massive, massive industrial wealth. Um, so it's, it's funny because that kind of lends credence to the old mantra that is, that is thrown about of, you know, rough men breed good times, good times breed weak men, weak men breed hard times, and the cycle then repeats itself. And there's absolute historical, you know, observation that you can do that, that 
also supports that that thought process and that cycle. But um, in regards to your question, Sal, uh, I had a couple of points, if if I remember uh, exactly what your question was. So the point about revolution, um, and this might be the uh, cynical side of me, um, but Americans are far too soft for large scale revolution, which I don't think is a bad thing. Um, revolution is not good um, in the modern sense. Uh, you know, I know that we romanticize things like the French Revolution, but that was one of the darkest periods of France's history, and a lot of innocent people were violently murdered and suffered as consequences for decades to come afterwards, just like the revolution in Russia. Um, for the most part, revolution is not a good thing. Um, so I don't think that we can avoid a revolution because I think, honestly, there will not be what we know is a, a conceptual term uh, of revolution. Um, you'll have political violence outbreaks. Um, most of it will be centralized in urban centers. Um, as we've been seeing, um, if Donald Trump is elected, you will see a spike in political violence um, for sure. If Joe yeah. Biden is elected, I think you are far less likely to see um, political violence because of the different theories, the different ideological um, deviations of the two sides, right? Again, we're talking about the difference between Bolshevism and other political thoughts. Um, Bolshevism is for the violent revolution. Um, and that has not become the mainstream of the left. Um, going back to my very early part uh, discussion at the beginning of the, the podcast about the difference between Menshevism and Bolshevism. That's a smaller portion, but it does exist. And if Donald Trump wins the election, I, I, would, I would be willing to, to bet that you will see an increase in political violence coming from that subset of leftist ideology. We've talked about this a couple of times on the show where you have someone like Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris being on the ticket for the Democratic Party. And it would seem as though, and again, this might just be my perspective because of where I lean, but they're not good candidates. They're not viable candidates. And it would seem to me that it would almost be the plan to have him reelected, him being Donald Trump, so that we can have this revolution of violent overthrow. That's my, that's my cynical point of view of maybe that's the point. We want to have Donald Trump reelected so that we can have and propagate this violent overthrow. Well, you're far more cynical than me if, if that's, if that's yeah. your, uh, your viewpoint. Um, I think that uh, ineptitude uh, of political party management is what gave us a ticket uh, Biden-Harris. Um, yeah. we, go, we go back to 2016 and we look at the, the elevation of Donald Trump to the, uh, the presidential ticket for the Republicans. I mean, my God, you had the exact same conspiracies going on the other side. It is who in their right mind would think that Donald Trump and Mike Pence, who are just personality opposites, would fill the Republican ticket 
especially when Donald Trump wasn't a Republican. He was a Democrat until the last decade. Yeah, he actually, if I remember correctly, in like 1999, debated Pat Buchanan and called Pat a Nazi. Like, that's how that's absolutely how left uh, Donald Trump actually was at one time. And no. Pat Buchanan is not a Nazi. <laughs> so just in case, any, I'm sure he would be called one today, but he's, he's not, okay? And, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, my family actually, I'm not going to say where my family was, but because people will just call me all sorts of names, but my family were nobility from France. And they legitimately did flee a revolution, and uh, it wasn't the French Revolution, and they uh, ended up here. Um, they ended up in New Orleans, and they barely escaped with their lives. Luckily, they owned their own ships, and they, they left. But if they had not, they would have been killed for sure. Um, and so then what happened, I think it was like eight years later after the start of that particular revolution, was the French Revolution. Um, and, you know, you have Robespierre Which and the, <laughs> the Reign of Terror, specifically. Yeah, because the, the, the 19th century is like, what, five different uh, republics at that point. I think we're on the Sixth Republic. So um, the Fifth or Sixth, I think we're in the Fifth Republic or we're something. In the fifth I think Republic. Was, there were four back then or three. So, um, you know, the... Uh, the situation in France scared them very badly too. A lot of their family members ended up coming to Louisiana as well. Like it isn't a lot of people. It's a funny joke in Louisiana. A lot of people are like, Oh, I'm French nobility. And also they say these things. Some of them legitimately are. There's a lot of families that a lot of people who have married into these families now that legitimately are escaped French counts and things like that. It's, it's a real thing. And uh, you know, I think eight years later or so, a lot of their family members ended up coming to Louisiana and barely escaped with their lives as well. And the reign of terror was one of the darkest uh, periods of time in human history. And I would ultimately say that the Jacobin uh, ideology probably helped foster um, Marxist ideology. Um, the Jacobins to this day are almost a simulacra of the, the communists or Bolsheviks. Um, they're just kind of different. And, and their approach to governance, but the, the same, the same angst and um, cultural degradation and plight of the impoverished is ultimately what facilitated their rise as well. Well, so the Jacobins and then going to the Jacobites and, and all, all those, those political ideologies that that evolved back then might have led to uh some some sense of of political evolution of thought um but the reality is is what gave communism the the growing room the uh the foot space to do what it did was exclusively at the fault of the United States. And I argue that the Wilsonian era is what ushered in the generations that would then commit the world's first full genocides yeah. and shattered what had been established as a societal status quo 
that comparatively was peaceful. Right. Right. Human history is, is one long struggle of, of seizing power from somebody else. Um, no point yeah. in human history has ever been peaceful. But what happened in the 20th century after Wilson essentially unilaterally decided that the world needed to just be partitioned into individually self-reliant states ushered in the darkest period of human history. And ultimately, what, what's so funny is a lot of people feel that this movement and this angst is coming out of the American political left. And don't get me wrong, it is political leftist ideology at its core, but ultimately it isn't our government or people in government that are promoting you know, Black Lives Matter or Antifa or cancel culture or cranny story time. It's literally being funded by NGOs, big banks and big capital like Procter and Gamble. Right. So I, I wildly, I wildly disagree with. with well, hold on. I'm, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back around. So ultimately, the same the same group of people that are funding these things did actually fund the rise of Bolshevik thought leaders in Russia. The same, the same groups in American banks did that as well. A lot of Bolshevik money came from New York. Um, and, it's, it, and that kind of ties in with the whole, a lot of these kids that are leading these movements happen to be the same, same people's children. Um, so, but yes, it, it still is political and it still is coming from the political left, but it is actually, I mean, look, the things that the NFL, the NBA, all these things that are angering you, they are actually coming from corporations at this point. And these corporations are infiltrated by leftist agitators. So fundamentally disagree that it does not come from the, the political arms of, of the right and left. And it, and it does. It it flows both. No, ways, it totally right? does. Uh, what, what I'm basically saying is, it's, ways. it's political and and big capital working together at this point is what I was trying to say. Well, so so again, though, and and I guess that that would lead to a whole nother topic is where does capital and politics diverge? I would argue that it doesn't. As a matter of fact, I would yeah. argue that our 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 great nation that that we live in that I am proud to you know have served and I am proud to to be an American our great nation wasn't a revolution founded on altruism no right? we can look no, at our founding not. fathers we can look at our founding doctrines and we can understand that a lot of it was capital motivation it was it was to be able to become autonomous now, granted, there was a secondary thought of altruism to it. If we can maintain our own capital, if we can maintain our own economic dependence, then we can provide some sort of an autonomous life for our own constituency. But again, the, the original ideas of revolution weren't founded because our founding fathers got together and were like, hey, we're tire, tired of old Georgie telling of us what to do. It was because no, I, I we're said all tired of, of our economic impact being affected by somebody else. So I, I said all of that to basically answer Sal's question. 
which is as Patriots, what do you do to combat this? Well, I mean, honestly, I would play the left game, make us think. There are people promoting these ideologies. They're not just political. Yes, vo- vote, you know, voice your opinion, vote, hold the line there. But the left boycotts you, they shout you down, they use heckler's vetoes. I'm not saying to use the same tactics and, and I'm not saying to be violent, but stop buying their products, stop watching their television, stop watching their programming. If they're making you suffer and forcing you to do these things, make them suffer financially. You can shop elsewhere. You can use different products. Uh, you, can, you can basically turn off the television. And you should at that point. And that's one of the ways that we can basically fight back as patriots. You don't have to do the same things and engage in the same violence and engage in the same behavior as Antifa. You shouldn't. You don't have any sort of apparatus of support behind you. You will just be smacked down. You know, and, and you will go to jail, and rightfully so. The things that Antifa are doing are anarchy and murder, and it's violence, and those are crimes, and you're going to be punished under the law. Just stop turning on your TV. Stop being complacent. Stop buying the products that spit in your face. Stop giving these people your money, and they will stop funding these movements. They won't have the capital to do so. Aren't we at a point, though, where some of these larger capital entities are very far left and there isn't competition that can fairly keep up with what's happening? I don't know if that yeah. dives into a completely different topic, but well, they're all it's related. harder I mean, now. I can't go, but in my small town, to Walmart, right? Big Box, and we've talked about this during the shutdowns, Big Box was given the opportunity to thrive and, and have huge surpluses of wealth a transference of wealth if you will yeah, ate up all the market share and and the small businesses the the small restaurants the small entities the small business owners were left out to dry and, and how do, how do we quote unquote boycott some of these things when there is no competition and if there is competition it's, it's silence in such a way it's silence in such a way that people don't want to speak up. I mean, just here locally, we have politicians and, and local officials that are scared to speak up because they go to church with, you know, the opposition at the same time. And, you know, that opposition yeah. ha- happens to have a louder voice. How yeah. do we get past that? Do we get past that? And, and I guess it's, that's where it goes to my cynicism of, aren't we just headed to that huge boiling point, boil over, where there will be the next American revolution? I don't, I don't know that that will necessarily have to take place. I would, I would love to explore this as a, as a, a, a legal, you know, uh, opportunity or perhaps strategy. But ultimately in society, if you are out protesting and someone comes and shouts you down, I've talked about this on the other uh, podcast when we talked about uh, the internet and how basically what the big tech companies are doing is ultimately like a tech, uh, technological heckler's veto and basically using your own money to silence you, which is illegal. We established this in the Lions laws back in the 20s. But at some point, if money is free speech and somebody basically just drowns you in their money to silence you, I would argue if you were, if you were engaging in some sort of a protest in the public square, whether it be the courts or a battle over uh, public access, and someone just basically silences you through mass amounts of capital at some point if we're not differentiating money and free speech it does become a heckler's veto and it basically does silence an entire class of people you could have a class action against that group i don't know what that but what that point looks like i don't know how uh the silent majority could go about establishing that as legal precedent but i do feel like that door is open so 
in in regards to this, we've we've now reached a point where my practical uh, political philosophy um, takes one approach, and then my philosophical um, political philosophy takes another approach, um, and it's kind of directed back towards one of the er- earlier periods or segments of of the podcast that we talked about was the concept of mob rule is fairly new in this country. When you give political access to a a massively underinformed populace and we we saw a rise in the polarization with the whole early 2000s voter die get out and vote kind of kind of movements is you have people that become politically active that haven't won the foggiest clue how politics and government is run second don't understand why they need to vote for certain different levels of government. And this is an argument that I had with somebody the other day is far too many people give way too much importance to the executive election. You know, the, the presidential election is, is the most lauded and, and talked about and promoted and divisional election in our nation's, you know, quadrennial cycle. I had that conversation with my wife just the other day. <laughs> you know, she, she for, doesn't want to vote for the president, but she, I told her the local the average, elections. Yeah. For the average American, your president is irrelevant. But as we have pushed this, we have started trying to legislate more authority at the top that then gets delegated out to the states. And, you know, one of the things that isn't talked about a lot in this current uh, pandemic environment that, that I feel, and, and I'm not a diehard Donald Trump supporter. Um, one of I'm the either, points man. that I would like, to, one of the points I would like to make about Donald Trump and his handling this pandemic, and I have to give him some credit on this, is the fact that, he did what the federal government should do. Said, we have resources, we have means, we have everything that you need to support you, but you as the governor needs to make the decision on an individual level what is best for your state, and we will help support that. Granted, some governors shit the bed, excuse my French and did really stupid things. Other governors kind of said, "Inshallah, we'll we'll see we'll see what <laughs> happens," and went about business as usual. Um, you know, and I think that that is a huge to somebody that is accused on almost a daily basis of being a power hungry, just totalitarian dictator. That took a massive amount of restraint to not take federal overreach and go to every single state and say, you're going to do what I tell you to do. 
which is the exact opposite of what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have said they would have yeah. done. I would like to and say this so though about the I, whole situation. I, I, no, go ahead, John. Finish. I'm sorry. There's a delay. I apologize. I, I, I was just saying. So I would, I would, I would, I would applaud the president on on his restraint that he showed, but also give him credit on what he did. And he, even though the political narrative says didn't listen to scientists or he downplayed the severity of it, is really irrelevant because you know actions are are more important than words. And by shutting down travel, not just to China, but to epicenters throughout Europe and then for a certain period of time to essentially the entire world, um, he did what was the best practice that you could do in such a situation. He mobilized industrial powers production clauses and acts within our, within our constitution to reach and fill shortfalls that were predicted by medical professionals, which thank God did not come to pass, but holy hell, Ford Motor Company was manufacturing ventilators. Black Rifle Coffee Company's, you know, liquor distribution was making hand sanitizer. You know, the Gap, Abercrombie and Fitch were making, you know, face masks. And this is something that he was able to do and he did at the federal level to support state governments as they approach the issue from their own, not to mention the mobilization of federal assets such as hospital ships and field hospitals and military medical personnel, et cetera. So I, well, I have I, to applaud him on what, what he did in regards to this while still leaving what was the original intent of our federal government of states should control their own government and the federal government should be there purely for support. I agree with that. I, I, I will say this, though, and this is not a slight against Donald Trump because I feel like he had very little to do with this. Um, but I do feel like outsourcing this to the states or delegating it to the states under the Constitution, given the fact how federalized and top-heavy our government had become over the last 40 years, was in some ways not shirking responsibility, but in essence, it kind of was and passing the buck or basically um, delegating incompetence to the state. Because I, and this is not his fault, but our, our government had become, we have response capabilities to things like this. But over the past previous 20 years, the federal government and its responses under FEMA had become extremely hollowed out. And, you know, that wasn't Donald Trump's fault. And I'm not actually blaming Donald Trump. And I don't know that he could have handled it or if anyone would have actually handled it any better. But passing the buck to the states at that point, I think, was just a symptom of how hollowed out our federal responses had become over the past 20 years. See, and I argue that he passed the buck. I think that passing the buck to me would entail that you say, hey, this is your problem. Deal with it by yourself. That's passing right. the block. I, I'm, I'm having trouble coming happened. up. I, I, I don't what think happened, that's what happened either. Really. What, I, I was what, having what trouble kind of describing what I was saying. He, he bore down the full power of the federal government as far as he could. 
they injected right. massive amounts of, of federal money into even foreign institutions to develop therapeutics and vaccination programs or uh, uh, trials, medical clinical trials. Um, I, I, I don't think he passed the buck. I think that what he did was a responsible delegation of authority, which we don't see as you pointed I shouldn't out, have said pass the buck. That was not. Like that was FEMA, not exactly FEMA, what I meant. FEMA is. <laughs> I I I got you, but organizations like FEMA, um, the the federal centralization of emergency response, that then has the authority to go in and dictate to a state or a community the way that they handle a disaster is is absolute bupkis. And that's, and that's how we've, we've kind of diverged from the original intent of the founders. And sure. again, what the topic of this entire you know, podcast was supposed to be, and I know that we kind of travel all over the place, that's just the way my mind works. But you know, the original intent of the founders, which was to give autonomy to localized community um, in their own determinants of governments was a good idea for a nation like the United States, where we are not of, of one people, where we are not of the soil. We are not an indigenous population that has been here for centuries. And I think that in that pluralized society, that delegation of authority for communities to to rule themselves works very effectively. It and works better. For sure. We have eroded yeah. we have we have eroded that authority away. And it's not that the government just unilaterally said we're taking this authority away from you. We have expanded political access to the entire population that does not understand how the government works, how the government should work, or why they're even voting for people. Right. And is so, there a solution um, to that in a, in a constitutional republic? Absolutely not, because we stand on the values that all men are created equal, and therefore we, we should have equal access to everything, regardless of your education, regardless of your, your skill in the game, so to say, whether you pay taxes, whether you own property. And these were all strides, you know, strides towards equality. But where do you cut off the corruption of the organs of your government by mob rule? Right. So going back to the FEMA thing, I'm not mad at Donald Trump and I, I, I shouldn't have said pass the buck because that wasn't really what I was trying to say. What I was trying to say is basically we had paid for this concentration and the centralization of power over the years. And we paid taxes for it year over year for these responses that basically were allowed by previous administrations to sit in warehouses and rot and never really developed properly and weren't maintained properly. That's not Donald Trump's fault at all. Uh, that is definitely his very previous administration and the administration before that hold a lot of uh, culpability for that. And they should be held accountable for that. I agree. Actually, what Donald Trump did as far as the delegation to the states is more originalist. What 
irritates me is for, for, for decades, we had paid for the centralization and for all of these resources, they were mismanaged and then we didn't have access to them. So I, I actually, I, I wanna make it clear that I am actually not mad about what Donald Trump did or how he handled it because the more I had found out about it later, the more I came to realize that we were charged for all of these things that were poorly managed. And it was basically a giant boondoggle that was allowed to rot and never, never fully developed. And that wasn't his fault. And the way he did orchestrate a top down, he did orchestrate a top down response in the development of new resources and the management of the funds we had available to provide aid to the states. That was perfect. And I don't know that another, uh, another, um, official would have been able to pull it off the way he did. I think it would certainly have cost us more money and there would have been a lot more shady deals go on. Uh, but what irritated me the most is, like I said, just how our tax dollars, billions, billions of our tax dollars rotted and were unavailable and were unavailable for distribution. I mean, and by the same token, now that we're putting dollars, this is one of the things that I do have to critique. The administration and it was 100% because of just political capital. They, they didn't have the political capital to not do it. We did add a, another couple trillion dollars to, to our deficit because yeah. of this whole, which I think has been a, a wild overreaction um, for, for something as benign um, and and I'll probably get crucified for using that word, but a very benign virus in the scheme of of global pandemics. Agreed. When when it comes to just bringing it back to Red October and and the communism problem, what what would you say to the social dilemma that we have? And and I'm playing off of Netflix's documentary called The Social Dilemma, where social media, the internet, this platform that we've all been given free access to has propagated a lot of these ideas where outside influence, and and Quentin, you brought this up early on, we have outside influences with active measures trying to actively persuade certain areas of the population that our current administration is evil and bad. And and we're utilizing these, uh, these platforms in such a way unlike a utility where they're not given this, this oversight in, in how they're managing their, their platform, the, their Facebook is being treated as a publisher, but they're not actually a publisher. So where would we be in the Bolshevik re- revolution with social media? And how does that relate to where we are now with the use of social media to propagate a lot of these ideas? Okay, that's a, <laughs> again, you, you, you've got a great, great ability, Sal, to, to point to something that is, is complex and has so many different factors that, that tie into understanding it, understanding the transition to it, mm-hmm. and then understanding a transition out of it. Um, but it's not a single factor in, in where, we've, where we've gotten to. So... So human human communication has just evolved in leaps and bounds in the last four or five decades, right? I mean, um, having outside actors able to influence the 
the majority of our population on a daily basis through through things like social media um, or even uh, you know visual media is is new in the sense of the cyber community um, but the concept of disinformation propagandizing and trying to reach out to a population is not new i mean that's as old as warfare and um yeah i mean geez you <laughs> now we just have automated bots to do it for us <laughs> right exactly you have your your cell phone um i'm unfamiliar with the the documentary that you're you're speaking about i'm personally very anti-documentary uh, I don't watch documentaries. I prefer to read books because it's easier to cross reference. There was definitely an agenda, agenda to that when when you think about the platform that was giving you this documentary. When it comes to Netflix, right, actually exactly. being a streaming the service, right? So, so I haven't watched that particular documentary, but I have read uh, numerous. Um, psychiatric journal entries and studies, peer-reviewed studies um, about the impact of social media on particularly our youth within a nation and a ability to one, impact their mental health, two, uh, to impact their, um, their political ideological deviations, um, and really where we saw a massive spike in media's ability to influence the very lives of our young population occurred with not the invent of social media, but that of smartphones and handheld uh, processing devices. The, the fact that social media is an absolute toxin and you know poisons our society is is easy enough as a matter of fact i just finished reading uh uh prince mikhail sherbatov's book which was an analysis on the corruption of morals in russia where he attributed uh, a lot of the corruption of, of russian society and culture to western media of the time which was print right so all we're doing is we're taking the exact same concept of external forces impacting the cultural base and future of our own societies. And with the invent of, uh, of social media, as well as, you know, handheld processing devices, you have continual exposure to the exact same thing that historically has always impacted societies and cultures, right? The spread of information. But well, it's extremely social media is so unhealthy because of the dopamine feedback loop that it creates in the mind and how it makes people's attention spans shorter. And they want I, to re- receive the similar reward for uh, the same action, but exert less effort time over time. And it, it creates a really lazy and kind of impatient, impulsive society. And what's what doing the mind? Well, that goes towards really instant gratification. Right? It is. It's just instant gratification. It's and that's our entire cocaine. culture. It is. Yeah. I would say and, something also well, really that's, scary. that's modern society. And that's, but that's, but that's not just the United States. I mean, that that's modern humanity. You know, when I lived in sub-Saharan Africa, one of the, one of the, ongoing jokes that I had with a lot of my colleagues that I, when, when I was working over there was 
I get better cell phone reception here than I do anywhere in the United States. And I'm out in the middle of nowhere in the Zambezia province of Mozambique. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a entire global impact, not just our society. How do we come? That's absolutely right. How do we, how do we combat that? I mean, there's now a growing trend of decompressing and, and unplugging and, and that has its, its virtue behind it. But are we so far gone in, in the social media aspect of, of our information being, or, or even disinformation being propagated? How, how are we to combat that? And, and how do we get to the non-fake news? How do we continue to educate our peers and our colleagues that are only seeing one side, truly one side? They're not looking at both sides. They're not having these conversations. They're not having dialogue. You know, it's my guy versus your guy. It's red versus blue. It's black and white. There is no gray. I mean, honestly, we've seen this before in history. This isn't anything new. We're just literally, they're developing a, a really basic kind of surf-like proletariat that just feeds off of instant gratification and, and sound bites. Like there's, there was the crier in ancient medieval time and he would just go out in the square and just cry headlines basically and give people what the king or whatever their duke or local earl or whatever wanted them to hear, you know, and, and that's how people behave. And if we, people were illiterate and were coming up on functional, you know, illiterate uh, society pretty soon. I, I think that we're kind of headed towards that same type of person and that same type of mentality. Ultimately, what allowed that society to break out was increased literacy rates and education. And you had the Renaissance and Enlightenment period. You had a shrinking of society, kind of a uh, whittling down, so to speak, and uh, a heavy selection pressure due to environmental causes. It, and this is like a really long diatribe about this. But basically... I don't think people are actually going to break out of this. I think that you're going to have to see a, a next stage in human evolution before people become aware that they even have a problem and have the tools and the means to fight back against something like this. And you're going to look at things like neural nets, genetic modeling, things like that in the future. And that's going to be basically the escape. So, um, Again, your face is Quinn, love love you. Um, I'm gonna have to disagree with you um, on the the kind of chain of events that you just pointed towards human evolution, uh, cultural evolution. I maintain that there is no difference between modern society and medieval, early early modern, or even ancient society. Human beings are human beings. Um, we have not evolved. No, that was the whole point individual. of my diatribe. There, there, was no, there, there was no actual evolution. It was just simply people had access to more information over time. But we're also right. we're drowning in the information now to where we're basically unable to make sound decisions or we have so much, you know, uh, counterintelligence or we have so much uh, propaganda thrown in our face and nobody can really make sense of it. So it's functionally well, and we're, we're going back. Well, so we're going back to where I diverge from you on, on our, our beliefs here. 
again, whether you're drowning in information or whether you're completely uninformed is irrelevant. The relevancy is who has access to political mobility. And to me, if you want to resolve this in, in answering Sal's question, if you want to resolve why people care so much and why people take the time to spread what essentially is an echo chamber of, I feel this way, therefore I'm going to spread the exact same message that I hear from anybody else to reaffirm myself. If you want to stop that, one, that's just human nature. There's nothing new about that. That's that's just the way it always is. That's no, there's no way to stop reification came, or anything like came that. Came into existence. Yeah. That's how philosophy evolves, right? You know, when you look at our academic system, and that's all it is, is a giant echo chamber of of doctoral candidates echoing whoever the hell their their you know uh, dissertation board agrees with. But um, but if you want to stop that just regular attribute of human nature you have to limit who is able to impact grand change within your society and i just that think the way society is going sounds is, like a I, I don't think that that's possible i don't think we're going to eliminate universal no suffrage. it's 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 not well, so it's it's not, well, that's why it's not I'm possible saying, to, to move beyond. I mean, it would be harder. So it would be harder to eliminate universal suffrage uh, than to so, so anatomically, me, you know, alter man. All right. So you you I so I I disagree with that assessment. I I don't think that you will ever change human nature. Um, I do agree with you that in certain nations certain societies you will never be able to restrict the access to political influence uh right. in a meaningful way right and this isn't this isn't you know some archaic you know thought process of your skin is this color you shouldn't have access or hey you don't have a million dollars in the bank you shouldn't have access but by the same token, there there needs to be some sort of a, a litmus test for right. whether or not you're able to impact greater societal decisions. And that is absolutely true. The United States, we will never, ever, ever be able to reach that. And nor should we, because that's not the foundations of our society. And I'm an originalist in the concept of societies need to operate how societies were founded. Um, well, originally, this, the United this society States, expressly prohibited universal suffrage. I mean, those are amendments to the Constitution that allowed for that. You're, you're right. So, and you're as right, far as that you, they limited it, the and body, then they defined what a man was. Right. But if you read the, if you read the body and the intent, of the constitution right and i'm not a living document believer but the the projected spirit of what america was would prohibit you from ever reverting to any sort of regressive uh strategy politically but in other parts of the world that's not the case 
And I agree with that. And what we as Westerners continually, again, going back to my, my academic background, which is Eastern Europe and Russia, we've always viewed those parts of the world as backwards because they deviate towards a sort of restricted access to political, um, political movement. And I think that in the grand scheme of things, if you want to help correct the modern global society's, you know, infatuation with getting in other people's business, let other countries, let other societies run their business how best they feel like running their business. And I I think that that would resolve a large portion of our own internal political issues. If we didn't have what Russia's doing, what China's doing, what the EU's doing, what Mexico and Canada are doing. We did not have that broadcasted in our media on a daily basis. I think a lot of people would just kind of tune out of the international executive level uh, political dialogue. I think they would start focusing back on where it's important. And where it's important is your municipal elections, your county elections, your state elections. Get out of other geographic localities' businesses and start dealing with your own localized problems. You see that. You and know, we're, we're, we're so 30,000 foot view that people don't see that, you know, entire groups of people are using their resources to change local elections for DA and county judge and sheriff. You know, you, you have you have a massive amount of like Soros money and that sort of thing all across the country that, that are basically just turning local uh, governments on their heads overnight during these giant elections. And people aren't paying attention to it because it's always this 30,000 foot view, the executive is all that matters, right. even though we're in a weak, weak executive country. I, I, I feel bad because the host like raised his hand, like he had a, a question, but this is his show. No, so, it's our show. <laughs> it's like, Sal, Sal, did you have, did you have something you wanted to do? <laughs> and to clarify, it is Quentin and Sal. Um, but no, it, it was, it was just a matter of, does that become a slippery slope? And, and if my understanding of what you were describing is correct, if we are to limit certain if we are to have a criteria for which government is able to be influenced, does that create a slippery slope of heading into communism where it is only left up to a corrupt body of individuals, the elite, the intellectual, the, the people who would put you under their thumb? I, I don't think that's an accurate definition of communism. Okay. Again, no, every single agree. form, every single form of government is a hierarchical structure of political elites. The difference comes from who gives the authority and the power to ascend to that class of political elites. Communism is what we're going towards, right? The, the, the communist ascension to the political elite, right? Because obviously communism isn't a, a how do people get in power? It's what do they do once they get into power? But the, the system of communism and how people ascend to that uh, power is what we're deviating towards, which is mass mob rule from a fairly uneducated term, uh, air quotes on uneducated, but uninformed uh, 
populace that is driven by emotion and sentiment by by a a good public speaker or in Donald Trump's case a poor public speaker that just nails the the critical you know the critical points that that elicits the emotional response from the voting class i mean that's moving towards communism what what i proposed is more towards um authoritarianism or um and i'm not promoting authoritarianism right i'm i'm giving you a political <laughs> a political uh like direction um but more towards an authoritarianism um not necessarily an autocratic authoritarianism uh obviously not a theistic authoritarianism um but more towards a uh i mean i would i would argue some sort of an economically driven federalist society right where where your international you mean like originally like i think we were right we were basically we, we, exactly right yeah. right constitutional right uh, uh you know art the articles confederation you know yeah. speak broadly towards this um the only <laughs> problem is is on that fateful day when old old benny came out and they said you know what did you give us and they said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Um, I think that there was obvious hesitation in the, the idea that, okay, when you give a, a doctrinal basis for expansion of political access to everyone and anyone, this is what you get. That is, that is the core. So to, to give you some credence to what you're saying, because I agree completely. Actually, the Constitution was wildly unpopular when it, when it was enacted. People think it was a very popular document. It was wildly unpopular. It was wildly unpopular with the Yeomans. They felt they had better, more localized representation under the Articles of Confederation. There was a mass amount of treachery that went into the Constitution, and there were some very shady games played to achieve it. Jefferson and Patrick Henry were left out of it until the very last minute where they could not grandstand and say anything about it. And it was intentionally kept from them. And after the Constitution, you actually have full-out rebellion several times, several times. And the Bill of Rights, which is what everyone thinks the Constitution is, was an afterthought. It was a complete afterthought, and it did not come for a couple of years later because of the rebellion that were actually occurring. So there's, there's a lot to what John is saying is absolutely true. And to go back a little further in history, let's talk about like your dread sovereign. The idea of the dread sovereign, the, the actual native dread sovereign has no reason to sell his people out to any interest, foreign or domestic, because it weakens him. The problem with the British aristocracy was they were alien sovereigns with claimants on continental Europe, and they were using the United States and Britain as a resource colony to strengthen their holdings on the continent. These were alien families. It started with the Plantagenet. Well, it started with the House Norman. Then it continued with the Angevins and the Plantagenets. I don't want to talk too bad about them because those, a lot of those people are my actual ancestors. On down, and then you have the Stuarts, right, who are native, and that's also some of my ancestors. And they were native Brits, and they were very British nationalists. And you had an agitation, an external agitation in the form of the Roundheads from the continent to basically then overthrow the Stuarts. Also, they were Catholic. They ended up being Catholic anyway. 
But this was an external coup against this resurgence of native rule in Britain. Then you had Hanover's takeover, William Orange of Nassau. Progressive Hanover's. Hanover's are now in charge. They have clemency to continental holdings and basically did not speak English, were not English, did not represent the interests of any Englishman, whether it be on the island or in the colonies. And they abused the Englishmen for their own personal gains. And the monarchy did that up until the modern day, where now they're extremely weak and they just can't do that. But if that monarch had been a Stuart or had been an Englishman and they, and, and they had total control, everything was under their charter, under their supervision, whether it be foreign trade or domestic enterprise, they would have ultimately no reason to sell the native population out because it weakens their hold. It makes it, the, the contract between the governors and the governed is of such where it is not within your interest to abuse your population if you are an autocrat. But people don't understand that part of American history, how our king was actually not British and actually despised British people, whether they be in England or whether they are in Scotland or Ireland or whether they be here. So. Quentin, I, I feel like you're, uh, you're, you're trying to force my hand in this, um, but my personal political philosophy of what works best for people who are of the land, right? So European nations, African nations, Middle Eastern nations, Eastern, uh, Eastern Asian nations is a monarchical system. I do believe in some sort of a monarchical system. Because it's natural law. that you just made it's it's human it's human nature it's not it just is. human nature it's it's just animal nature right yeah. we, we look at the the systems of how every single species exists um but there are certain restraints that i think need to be assigned um i do not believe that the british monarchy is really even a legitimate monarchy anymore in my my studies and in my my circles of of monarchist thought um they're not viewed as a monarchy um but we have seen a resurgence of monarchy and i i was just sitting here i had an afterthought and i was thinking back to when i was talking about the the russian empire and the uh expansion i think i said alexander the third was the one who emancipated the serfs. And I would like to correct that for anybody that is fact-checking this. It was Alexander II, uh, Alexander III's uh, father, who um, emancipated the serfdom in 1855. Anywho, um, going back to the concept of, of monarchism and why we're actually seeing a resurgence of monarchist sentiment, not in the measurable sense that you would say a populist wave, but in a measurable sense to where the Albanians had a, a national referendum to reinstate uh, Crown Prince Laika only, I want to say, seven, eight years ago. And he lost the referendum by less than 10 points from outside sources. I was going um, to say, yeah, if, if he lost because from, from of outside, outside influence. Yeah. Well, so outside... I don't. You're I don't agree Poland. that yeah, you lost I, because I, I. I don't. I don't agree that the referendum failed to pass because of outside sources. But what I am pointing towards is outside sources say that there was internal government 
kind of right. influence that that pushed it almost to a point of standard deviation. So there's still kind of the jury's out on whether or not the Albanian people voted for a reascension of the monarchy. Um, we look at a country like Luxembourg, who has now essentially gone back to an autocratic monarchy. I mean, it's fascinating how the people willfully, um, you know, surrendered all the checks and balances to the uh, the Grand Duke of Luxembourg um, or Archduke. I don't know. If you're if you're elite, societies tend to use weird phrases. Right. If if you're elite, your financial elite in a nation are not beholden to that nation in a very real sense, and they want to climb the tower of power, so to speak, they will seek external influence to do that. And they will basically sell out the native population to achieve their goals, whether they be financial or political, without that that top level check on their power. They will do that. So 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 in an effort to tie this back to Porcel's uh, initial uh, opening of this, uh, of this entire dialogue, because I could go on all day about my own political philosophies, but um, to tie this back to cells and what we saw as the desperate demonization of monarchies during the Wilsonian era, which led to the rise of communism throughout um, the first uh, or the, the conflict between the first, second, and third worlds was a, a legitimate campaign of disinformation or slightly skewed information. I don't know if you want to consider it fake news. Uh, I think that that term is, is well, well beaten and, and murdered into the ground. But um, what it was is it was the early onset set of what we now experience in our current political systems the utilization of of media and expression of radical ideology to polarize people based on emotions and that's that's what the downfall of of monarchy was and we had our very dear President Woodrow Wilson, who championed it throughout the entire world. And what did we get? We got seven genocides in less than 100 years. We had numerous international wars, large-scale international wars, um, all because we as Americans had our original doctrine, took that, manipulated it sometime around the mid-19th century to mean something else and then expanded our international influence to then project our misunderstanding of our own original intent across the world. And as a result, the world turned into chaos. We're seeing a lot of that. Excuse me, we're seeing a lot of that, just that chaos manifesting in, in this upcoming election and and with it being less than 30 days out 25 days away what are what are your predictions john what are you seeing Jesus. happening in the patterns that uh, <laughs> our our 2020 has given us where you think it's going one way and holy crap <laughs> sal if 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 i gave you a prediction um 
I mean, I, I don't, I don't physically think I can give you a prediction, but what, what I could say is I would probably be less surprised by the like second coming of Christ than the actual, <laughs> than the actual outcome of what's going to happen in this election. Cause we'll I, you, I li- we'll have you record two then one, one is the winning <laughs> prediction and then one is the wrong one. And we'll make sure that the right one gets aired. Okay. So, all right. So I will, <laughs> I will, I will put it this way. I will, I will put it this way and all, all indicators that, that I've studied from political science standpoint um, has deviated towards a lack of people being truthful in regards to when polling entities contact them or evaluate them or tabulate their their data in any sort of way so i think that it is not outside the realm of possibility that we are going to see exactly what happened in 2016 happen again in 2020 Hmm. Um, polls. I I just was uh, listening to Quantipiac, uh report. Um, I think has Biden by sixteen points. Um, but this time, you know, two thousand sixteen, they had Hillary Clinton for similar points. Um, just I I think that we we don't have the understanding of the political environment uh well hammered down um to where we can we can make accurate predictions i think that polling is going to political science as a whole is going to have to readjust its way that it does its its uh metrics in in evaluating outcome so i would not be surprised by a donald trump victory nor would i be surprised by <laughs> by a joe biden victory i know that that is kind of a cop-out but um no it's very accurate though i so the the one thing that i i have talked to with some of my quote-unquote libertarian friends um because you're you are seeing a, a rise of just social media spread of of uh third-party candidate uh joe jorgensen um what I would really, really not be surprised by is if we see a repeat of the Ross Perot uh, Bush 41, um, where a, a thin margin of error swings to the Democrats because there is a disenfranchised right, center right uh, community that votes for a third party candidate. Yeah. That's very true. That'd be really tragic. I actually don't think that a lot of a lot of right leaning people and a lot of conservatives, for whatever reason, they're tending towards libertarianism. And I don't really think how they they understand it. They just don't understand how bad for them that actually would be. They have no idea where that that political ideology will actually take the country. And it's not what they think. Well, um, I argue that it's actually an absence of political ideology. It is. Libertarianism stood for something at one point in time. So libertarianism at one point in time stood for uh, originalism, right? I was a libertarian. Uh, I I, I used to campaign for Ron Paul back in 08. I I was an original libertarian. I used to identify as one. I used to identify as one as well. 
years, and, years and years and years ago. And I did. I walked away from that party because it became, it is, it is a, societal a leftist, anarchist movement. It is. It is a leftist movement ultimately. And it, and it is morally far, bankrupt. Far it is not a society. Yep. Far more left leaning than, than most libertarians understand. Yeah. Um, it is not a society again, I would want to raise children. It would, it would frighten but, me but to again, raise a child. In the society. Democratic Party the, the Democratic Party no longer stands for democracy and the Republican no. Party no longer stands for republicanism. So I don't think anybody should be shocked or surprised by that. Actually, the one party that has pre- stayed pretty close to its guns is the Communist Party. So I have to give them credit for all 3,000 of their, their registered followers. They have, they have maintained their convictions and stuck to it. So, Comrade Bernie, more, more power to you for at least... Uh, on paper staying stuck to your convictions. Hopefully that fourth beach house works out for you. <laughs> I, I think I that agree with everything up. John just said. I don't, I don't, my, my own, my own political thought as far as the selection is concerned is, is the same. And I actually don't think that the result will be good no matter how, who gets elected. I mean, from a political standpoint and ideological sense, I, I would prefer to see a Trump election, but honestly that we can see a lot of societal problems because he gets reelected actually no violence so, violent political violence will will reach in all time i would i would hazard oh, yeah. that this might be the first period in our young nation's history if donald trump is reelected um especially if donald trump is reelected and we keep the house uh, keep the senate or retake the house i yeah. think that you will see the first non peaceful transfer of power in the history of the United States. I agree. I think we're headed for the, the years of lead or the lead years of Italy. I mean, I, I actually do. Like I, and, and, and I don't know if it'll look the same. I'm just using that as a, a historical reference point, but I think it could be eerily similar. I think that brings up a great opportunity. There's a, it's actually one of my clients. So shout out to gentlemen for liberty uh they have a new podcast if you want to check that out it it brought up that uh that idea we should have uh i'll reach out to them and see if if maybe they want to do a panel discussion and and we'll go on their show they come on our show and and have a have a gentlemanly discussion on liberty because they're they're of the libertarian anarchy philosophy of oh that would be so fun i would love to go talk to these guys yeah so i mean i think it opens up can i be a guest fly on the wall for that (laughs) why don't you be an actual guest for that oh i don't know i think if you put six five people in the middle of a podcast that gets a little busy we could we could take turns have a panel you and i can be the anti-libertarian crowd Sal can mediate <laughs> and anti- the libertarian. libertarian and that's and that's one one interesting thing that i i will i will stand by and i know it's a very cliche statement i believe that everybody's entitled to their own political ideology and philosophy no matter how stupid i might think it is um i support people's right to be a communist i have i have friends of mine that are that are legitimately communist and coming from a family who had members executed you know less than a hundred years ago by the communist i think that a lot of people raise eyebrows at that but i have friends that are communist i have friends that are that are 
I don't have any Nazi friends. I, I can attest <laughs> to that. But uh, I, I've definitely had had white nationalist friends. I've had black nationalist friends. Um, I've I've had a wide variety of friends, and I think that it allows you to have a good understanding of at least how the human mind worked when it comes to politics. For sure. Again, no matter how stupid I think their their philosophies and ideas are. Um. I, I I do uh, refuse to stand as full opposition to somebody's ability to to have it. Now I will, I will be an opposition will, on a podcast, <laughs> but but I will I agree with you. I, I'll I will oppose you on a podcast, but yeah, I'm I'm for I'm for multitudes of political ideology. It, it doesn't affect me one bit or another. But I mean, as far as your your the tenets of your belief, I'll argue those with you all day long. I used to be a libertarian. I am just not a left left leaning uh, libertarian, and I and I have all of the counterpoints to to uh, that it, entire ideology it, at this point. It might surprise you, but at one point in time, I was liberal when I went to art school and I was a computer animation student uh, way way back in the early two thousands. Uh, I was a fairly left leaning individual. I think classical um, I liberalism. Is, I think a lot of people we, were once liberal. Yeah, we, <laughs> then you become we, older we and pay grow taxes. Up, we, <laughs> we grow up. I remember. I remember getting off an airplane with an earring, and my dad looking at me like I was the biggest disappointment. <laughs> so, uh, no, listen. Um, yeah, political um, maturing. I wouldn't say evolution. There's there's a certain level of maturity that. I believe dictates your political tendencies. Yeah. Two final questions for you, John. If you had access to a billboard, given the, the theme of today's uh, discussion, if you had access to a billboard, what would be your message on that billboard? I'm assuming you want a serious answer for this. <laughs> or not. It can be whatever you want, man. It's it's your billboard. Um, Don't be libertarian. So if, <laughs> oh, well, so so two takes because I I enjoy kind of uh, skeptic comedy, dark 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 humor yeah. in general. In the face That's up my alley. In the face of of death and destruction, you have to laugh at it. Um, so I would, I would like to think that in reality, I would post something along those lines. Um, but, but in, in the context of this com conversation, what I would post is I would take all of the, uh, socialist and communist regimes and I would put them on a blackboard with red letters with the name of the regime and then the body count from that regime mm -hmm. powerful yeah mao was what 600 million i think it was closer I, to 200 uh, but i know, think the actual the, tabulation would probably be about half a million or, ha or half a half a yeah, half a billion collectively people. collectively 600 million it's, yeah i mean again tertiarily you can say that all of that actually gets added to stalin so Oh. <laughs> no, Russia yeah. would have over Russia would have over a billion people. Um, At least it wasn't COVID. But so, yeah, no shit, right? <laughs> Excuse me, French. Uh, but 
And that's going back to what we originally uh, talked about. This is why we no, I want I to think, call out communism if, and Bolsheviks for what they are murderers. Entirely. And it's so I, I, uh, I went on a rant the other day on a, on a different social media uh, platform that none of y'all have because you don't write Russian or speak Russian. <laughs> um, but I was on a different social media platform the other day and I went on a tirade against an American uh, uh, political commentator um, who essentially justified the, the murder of the Romanov children um as as just a part of progress um there are communists that get off on that and they, they literally I did not, relish I did in not, that murder i did not get upset because the same time while the romanov children were being murdered you know my great uncle eugene was also murdered with them um in the exact same basement um it's recorded that he tried throwing himself in front of the children to protect them um i did not get upset because my own family member was murdered that night what what appalled and shocked me was the callousness that somebody could talk about the murder of children mm-hmm. and yeah. that that i think is really one of going back to what quentin said your your divisions on morality because there's no such thing as universal morality I had this no. conversation last night with a, a Serbian and a Kosovar friend of mine, which, as you can imagine, was a pretty interesting dialogue. Um, but we were discussing universal uh, morality, and it doesn't exist. But for any any modern human to just callously dismiss the murder of children, um, I think you have to have a certain level of just cynical detachment from from what what we as human beings have achieved and are capable of achieving, which means that to me, you are the most regressive form of life and you are not in it to make anybody's lives better, no matter what your political platform claims. Mm. And I find communists and Bolsheviks are are very much on that line of their their level of just anarchically driven cynicism towards their fellow man really undermines any insincere message that their political platform promotes. Yeah. Final question. In the context of this conversation, what is the new normal for you? I don't know. The, the Gestapo might come kicking in my door. I remember when the, uh, <laughs> when the, the first lockdown happened, uh, I think I threw back to back crawfish boils, uh, in consecutive weekends at my, <laughs> yeah. at my house with plus 40, 50 people. <laughs> um, now how many no, of you are normal dead. is, <laughs> None. None of us are dead. As a matter of fact, in in my friend circle, we had our first positive COVID test about two weeks ago, and it was asymptomatic. And since uh, many of us have gotten tested, um, 
and everybody's negative. So we had well, no doubt it all links back to your party months ago. <laughs> had, it, it all yeah, stems from that <laughs> almost a year ago. Right? The incubation yeah. period has expanded to but, months. Uh, but no, <laughs> yeah. so right, flat flatten the curve, flatten the economy, flatten the potholes in my driveway. I really don't care. We're flattening everything. That's going to be my my mantra if I ever run for president. It's going to be flatten everything. Um, Latin communism. No, so the new <laughs> the the new normal for me is actually living my life um, as I always live my life. Uh, I've got my dog. I go fishing. I go hang out with my friends. I watch Aggie football. Beat the hell out of whoever. Um, we uh, yeah. We don't. We don't change our our normal um the biggest impact has been uh religiously for me uh my church has been um restricted um and if my my priest listens in on this he's probably gonna roll his eyes and be like you're, you're the most inconsistent uh congregationist that i have but um be that as it may seem it it did impact our church community um and as one of the few Russian Orthodox churches in Texas, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty critical thing. Um, outside of that, um, yeah, I, I don't like wearing face masks. It messes up my mustache. I have found that the natural curl of my mustache has, has been somewhat depleted by mask wearing. That's bad. Um, you have a very so yeah, elegant mustache. A, those are the two biggest, those are the two biggest impacts to my, my new normal. Awesome. John, thank you so much for the time that you've spent with us, educating the audience, myself included, uh, the history of Red October, America's communism problem. We look forward to your predictions either coming true or coming true because you gave us two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I took a very, I took a very po political uh, uh, stance on that. So you can't, I mean, but way. There, there's no other way to call it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, from an educated point of view, you gave the most educated opinion you could coin toss, you know, I mean, that's how we should somebody. determine our, our executives from now on. Sal, you're onto something. We should just say, this is who we pick. This is who we pick. Flip a coin and go get on with life. Or a boxing so. match or MMA or something. That'd be fun. Well, that would be interesting because that, that would change the demographics of who parties put forward. Yeah. <laughs> right? you'd, you'd, have, you'd have like, catching. you'd have guys like catching. Manny Pacquiao. Well, you can't go find. You have to be naturally born. In the you United have to be States national. Part of the president, right? right? That's one of those. But we would raise Chechen political. <laughs> you, we would have an enclave of Chechens. We'd raise in the mountains and the Rockies. Chechen, Chechen Chechens here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, all it takes is one needs to be born here, you know, and then we Listen, raise them I, as a I Chechen sure in the mountains. Russia, I am sure that Russia <laughs> would gladly export you every of influence so i you're right you would you would probably get some drowning big support from vladimir putin on that one <laughs> the great thing is is there's only a few million of them so yeah john i just want to acknowledge you one last time yeah. thank you for your time thank you for your knowledge and your wealth of information that you brought to the table we we appreciate you as for our audience thank you for listening we 
intend to stay as consistent as possible as Quentin and I's schedule allow it. We want to continue to bring these great interviews and these great conversations to the forefront. Wherever you are listening to us on iTunes, Spotify, please do rate, review, and subscribe. We hope that you will check out the website at newnormalpod.com. You can check out all of our back episodes there and of course on iTunes and wherever you download your favorite podcast. As always, stay safe and welcome to the new normal.